Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 2 Timothy, uh, we are continuing our study through the book of 2 Timothy. We're almost at the end of the book. In fact, the passage uh, that we've been looking at recently, including last, last Lord's Day, one commentator calls it basically the end of the substance of the book. Like Paul's main argument closes with the passage that we are looking at even this morning and the rest of it, although we will look at the rest of it and gain much from it, is more along the lines of personal instructions and things to Timothy that there will be some application for us, but not as directly as these things. And so if, if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to look mainly at verse 8, but I'm going to read Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8 for the sake of, of context today. Give ear to the word of God. It says, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Since the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at verses 6 through 8 as a whole. And we saw there that the Apostle Paul uh, began to talk to Timothy in more direct terms about his impending martyrdom, his death in Rome. Uh, and as violent and as unjust, humanly speaking, as, as it was, as certainly was, um, he viewed his death, his martyrdom, as among other things we saw, his offering to God. He, it was an offering, a sacrifice to God in some sense, even as his life and ministry in the gospel had been such. He viewed his martyrdom, his death, as his departure from this life of sin and misery, uh, to be with Christ forever. And he saw his impending death as the finishing of the race that the Lord had set out before him uh, on that Damascus road long ago. Well, I, uh, I, t I try to, when I preach, to handle a text and go on and, and not spend a lot of time you know, delaying things. But the more I uh, thought about it, the more convinced I became that the text we just looked at last Sunday, um, that there was kind of, uh, as the saying goes, a lot of meat left on the bone, a lot of things that we could benefit from. So I thought rather than rushing through and just to get to the next thing, that it would be good for us. Uh, that there's more for us to glean by way of instruction and encouragement from this passage, uh, particularly in verse 8. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning on verse 8 of our text. And so that's what we hope to do this morning is look at verse 8 at least briefly and see what lessons we can learn from it to apply to our own lives and running the race that God has set before each one of us who has believed in Christ. Uh, Paul had labored hard and suffered much for the name of Christ. If you read the book of Acts in particular, the second half more or less of the book of Acts, you will know uh, how many things that Paul suffered. You'll know how hard he worked in preaching the gospel. You know, it's easy for us, uh, even easy for me as a pastor, to kind of look at Paul and say, well, you know, Paul was an apostle. He's basically Superman. Everywhere he went, you know, it's, it's like Johnny Appleseed. Wherever Paul went, Christians just popped out of the ground. You know, people just became believers and everything was easy for him because he was given supernatural gifts that we don't have per se in the, the office that Christ had called him to. But when you read Acts, it's not the way it was, was it? I mean, Paul, Paul is probably the most uh, gifted as far as being used by God 
in some ways, the most gifted evangelist that the world may have ever seen. You know, we, we tend to see sometimes these evangelistic crusades and events at stadiums, uh, and thousands and thousands of people come forward. And, you know, honestly, uh, frankly, we don't know how many of those people are even uh, born again at that point. Some of them, we know from, uh, we've been told, some of those people are even planted by the people that organize the event. They tell them, when the music starts and the call is, for, is, is made, you start down the aisle first to get other people going, which is just manipulation, to be honest. That's a, a, that's, I think that's a, a dishonor to the Holy Spirit, not trusting the God to work through his word, frankly, uh, as well intended as it may be. But Paul, who knows how many thousands and thousands of people heard the gospel through him. He suffered in order to do it, and God used him greatly to save many. So Paul labored hard. You know, Paul, in fact, I forget the text, but Paul elsewhere says he labored harder than all the other apostles. Imagine saying something like that. And then he said, not, not that it was me myself, but the Lord did it through me. So he wasn't ashamed to say he worked hard. He spent his life. He was willing to spend and be spent uh, for the sake of the gospel and the, and the salvation of the lost. He suffered much. If you read the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I believe it is. It might, I might have the wrong chapter off the top of my head. He goes to great lengths to, to, to kind of list his quote-unquote qualifications for ministry, and they're all his sufferings. He was shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, beaten, imprisoned. Uh, and, and he says in the middle of all that, uh, after that he says, and what's more than that, my care for the churches. Paul, Paul listed his concern for the churches, his you know, worry, so to speak, his anxiety over the churches, as one of his biggest sufferings after all those other things he talked about. So he labored hard. He suffered much for the name of Jesus Christ in fulfilling the ministry that God had called him to years ago on that Damascus road. And among the many things that kept him going in the midst of all those things was the sure and blessed hope of the gracious reward that awaited him at the end of it. You ever read the, the book of Acts and the things that Paul suffered and say to yourself, how did he do that? I don't know about you. After the second or third, I'd have, I, I probably would have quit long ago and slunk away and hid under a rock somewhere. Not Paul. He gets stoned. They, they think he's dead. And what does he do? He gets back up, dusts himself off, and goes to the next city. I, I kind of kiddingly think of him like the Terminator. You know, you think he's dead. And he kind of gets back up and goes to the next place and keeps preaching until it was time for God to call him home. Um, and he put it in verse 7. He said he fought the good fight, past tense, not that there wasn't some still work for him to do. He fought the good fight. What did that mean? It meant his cause was just and it was well worth fighting for. His cause was true. He says he had finished the race that was set before him by the Lord. God had sent the Lord Jesus Christ had set before him a path, a, a race course, so to speak, in ministry. And he had, in many ways, you could almost say literally, Followed that course. You look in the back of your Bible, you might have a map sometimes. They have a map of Paul's missionary journeys. He looked at that as his race course, his marathon, so to speak, in the gospel. And he had finally finished it. He did not expect to leave the prison that he was in. Um, and he had also, he said, he kept the faith in verse 7. What does that mean? When, when, when you see the definite article, the word the in front of the faith, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't ex include his personal faith in Christ. But usually when it says the faith, it means he's faithful to the doctrine of Christ. He remained faithful to the truth as it was taught him by the risen Lord. He held to and held forth the sound doctrine of Christ and faithfully preached the gospel the whole time that he served 
in ministry, there was only one thing left. The only thing that remained was for Paul to go to his reward. And so that's what he's talking about in verses 7 uh, and 8, especially verse 8 of our text. So Lord willing, we're going to see three things from our text in verse 8 this morning. Three things about the reward that awaited Paul and awaited everybody else who has loved the Lord's appearing. First, we're going to see the crown of righteousness that Paul talks about. Secondly, the righteous judge who awards that crown to Paul and all who have loved his appearing, the appearing of Christ. And thirdly, we're going to look at the Lord's appearing. So the first thing that Paul speaks of in some ways is the reward itself, which he calls, which may seem sound kind of strange to our ears, but he calls the reward at the end of his labors the crown of righteousness. You might know if you've read your New Testament a number of times that the New Testament in particular speaks of the reward of the believer, the blessed reward of believers in Christ, as involving a crown of some kind. It's a, it's a very common term. And I'll just give you a few examples. In, in James chapter 1, verse 12, it's written, Blessed is the man who, is, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive what? The crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. Likewise, uh, writing to the faithful elders, ministering to the flock of God's church, in 1 Peter 5, 4, it says this, And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter wrote that to his fellow elders and under shepherds in the church to encourage them to persevere in ministry, in serving Christ in the church. They would receive the unfading crown of glory. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, uh, the apostle John uh, writes this for us. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, like Paul was right now, right when he wrote this, that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Here it is. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You know, God's saints, uh, the believers in Christ, Old and New Testament, frankly, who suffered many things uh, for the name uh, of the Lord and for his sake, I doubt many of them felt much like they were ruling or reigning. They didn't feel like they were being given a crown, certainly not in this life, but there was a crown that awaited them and awaits all who believe in Christ and love his appearing. And that's what the scriptures uniformly and in many ways tell us to expect and to put our hopes in. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the believers he had, he had seen converted under his ministry in the gospel as his, quote, Philippians 4.1, his joy and crown. Paul viewed the people that were converted under his ministry by God's grace as his crown, the thing that kept him going. And also his hope, quote, his hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. First Thessalonians 2, verse 19. So this is a word that Paul in particular used quite a few times. Now, the word for crown that Paul uses in verse 8 of our text, you know, if I say the word crown, I'm guessing just like myself, most of you, maybe all of you think of, a metal thing that you put in a king, you know, with maybe some, some jewels and things in it, very sparkly, shiny, expensive thing. That's not the word that Paul uses here, and it's not the context of the word picture he's using. What he's using is, uh, it's the word Stephanos, and it, it's, the, it's kind of that, that laurel wreath that they used to put around the athletes that won in the Olympic Games many, 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 many years ago. Uh, that's, the, that's the picture Paul is using here, and so 
Paul pictures his reward at the end of his race, so to speak, in terms of what would have been awarded to the winners of, of what we think of as the Olympic Games. That's the kind of thing he had in mind. Now, when you think about that, not that you want to press the analogy too far, uh, but what, what is the basic award there? You know, that, that laurel wreath or crown, so to speak, it was made of plants. You know, um, you, you guys uh, that buy flowers for your wife, for your wives and things, um, you know, they, they look pretty for the first couple days. If you get lucky, they may last a week. How long do you think those laurel wreaths, those crowns lasted? Probably not very long. After some time, they probably just fell apart and got thrown in the trash. Who knows what they did? But, so what's the point? The point was glory, wasn't it? The point was glory or, or fame. That crown didn't last, but the glory did. You know, in, in, our, in our context, maybe with sports, we might think of medals. You might think of trophies. You know, in, in sports, we often have a saying, flags fly forever. They don't really. Uh, but, you know, when you win a championship, you got that flag out in the center field. And if you're a baseball fan, that, you know, no matter how bad your team is this year, you go, hey, back in that year, my team won the World Series. Back in that year, my team won the Super Bowl. It might be a long time since, but you still look at that. You still celebrate that in many ways. That's the kind of idea that Paul has in some ways in mind here. And now the fame and glory that those athletes got from that, from winning their races, uh, their glory paled in comparison with the glory that awaited Paul and all who have loved Christ's appearing. Paul was languishing when he wrote this letter. He was languishing in a Roman prison. He was bound with chains. He was awaiting, literally awaiting execution under Caesar Nero. Uh, but the sword of the wicked in Paul's case, and in the case of every believer, uh, only served to hasten his reward and glory. None of us think like that on our own. None of us have that kind of perspective uh, outside of the grace of God. But that's, what it, that's the case. That's the truth of his case. He was going from chains to a crown. And so he wasn't afraid in some ways to, to endure what was coming. And now for the believer, we should know suffering comes before glory. We as believers in Christ often can get ourselves in a great bit of trouble by confusing that, that very thing. And we expect glory in this life, and then we are often sadly disappointed because we had the wrong expectation of how things should go. Not that God doesn't give us many great and perfect gifts in this life to, to enjoy, but suffering comes before glory. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 19, Paul says this, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then he adds, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and Paul knew a few of those, right? I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed uh, to us. I think I should say in us. Uh, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I mean, think about what Paul said in that last sentence. He's saying the whole, the whole of creation, not just us. The creation itself, the, the created universe itself, in some ways, is waiting with anxious anticipation for what's going to happen when we enter glory. They, they, they want to see, in, in, in a sense, the, the, the way that Paul's using the, the term here, uh, 
the creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, they want to see the glory. The creation is waiting to see the glory of God's people at Christ's return. Like if we think about that a little bit more than we typically do, most of us, I'm guessing, we might have a different outlook on life. And so the crown that awaited Paul and which awaits all those who have loved Christ's appearing, according to Scripture, it uses the, the phrase, it's a crown of life. It's a crown of glory, and Paul says it's a crown of righteousness. Another way of saying it is that this crown, it's not a literal crown, right? It consists in those things. Our, the crown that we will be given is a crown that is, is made up of life and glory and righteousness. It's a crown of life, eternal life, abundant life in Christ and with, with the Lord forever. It's a crown of glory. We who believe will enter into, into glory with Christ and reign with him forever. And it's a crown of righteousness, not only the bliss of the end of our sinning, but also of the perfection of our sanctification. We can't even comprehend what that will be like. You ever get, so you ever get frustrated with your own sins and shortcomings? If you have any conscience at all, I hope that's the case. You look at, you look at your life and you, you know, you're grateful for what God has done in and through you, but you say, what, you know, like Paul says in Romans 7, why do I do what I don't want to do? And the good I want to do, I don't see myself doing. There's a war within. And that war is evidence of your, belief, of your faith in Christ. It's evidence of your conversion and being born again. Unbelievers don't struggle with sin. Christians do. So if you're struggling with sin, don't be discouraged. Don't say, oh, it's a sign that I'm not a believer. It's a sign that you're a believer. And it should make you look forward to and long for the return of Christ and you're living with him in glory and life eternal and even righteousness. Um, John Stott puts it well, I think, here. He says, the crown which Paul anticipates he calls righteousness from his pen, from the way that Paul uses the word, from his pen, uh, the word would most naturally mean justification. But perhaps here it has a slightly different legal connotation and is in deliberate contrast to the sentence he is expecting any day to receive from a human judge in a human court, the emperor Nero may declare him guilty and condemn him to death, but there will soon come a magnificent reversal of Nero's verdict when the Lord, the righteous judge, declares him righteous. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. Paul was being treated with shame and contempt and even violence for his work in the gospel. He didn't feel very... Um, very righteous, even though he was and his cause certainly was in the gospel. Um, but he was going to be vindicated by the Lord. He was, going to not, he was going to go from being treated as a common criminal, even as Christ was done to. Christ was executed by capital punishment. He wasn't mugged and murdered in an alley. He was executed by a government in the same way it was happening to Paul. But Paul's crown would be that of righteousness. It would, it would vindicate him uh, before all for all to see so the lord jesus the righteous judge will not only reward his people but will also vindicate us at the end on that last day and vindicate our cause as his own if we are in christ by faith and if we are serving the cause of christ in our lives those whom the unbelieving world despises mistreats persecutes and even puts to death and martyrs christ himself will one day openly vindicate for all to see on the last day at the judgment. And so we who believe on Christ are free in this life to serve him and seek for his glory, trusting that he will make all things right 
on that last day. This should be a comfort to every believer, especially those who spend their lives serving him in the ministry of the gospel, and even more so to those who suffer for his sake and lay down their lives for the sake of his name. Well, the second thing that Paul turns our attention to is not just the reward, the crown of righteousness, but the Lord, the righteous judge, who is the giver of that gracious reward. Notice how he refers to the Lord Jesus Christ here, the one who has laid up that crown for Paul and who will give it to him, award it to him on that last day, is referred to by Paul here as the Lord, the righteous judge. He doesn't just say the crown of life, which Jesus or even the Lord Jesus will give me on that day. He, he, he makes certain that he mentions that he, the Lord, is the righteous judge. He was suffering under the hands of unjust judges and unjust rulers, but the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is the righteous judge who will make all those things right one day. And I think it's, I think it's clearly implied and to be understood here is he is contrasting the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with the unjust judgments of wicked men and wicked rulers like Nero and everybody else who was involved in Paul's conviction, imprisonment, and eventual martyrdom. Uh, every other enemy of the cross of Christ who has set itself against the Lord and against his anointed, uh, Paul contrasts them with the Lord Jesus Christ who is the righteous judge, unlike them. You know, if our reward uh, were dependent upon a just judgment or just outcome in this life, we would have reason to doubt and I think even reason to despair. Um, in injustice, I don't think it, it takes much uh, to prove this, and I won't bother trying. I think it's, it's self-evident. Uh, there is uh, injustice that abounds in this life. I don't think it would take two minutes for us all to think of a, a slew of things that we look at and that vex us about the injustice that goes on all around us. Unjust judgments abound because unjust judges and rulers abound in this this should rightly vex the righteous. When you read the Psalms, even the Psalm we had as our call to worship, that's what was going on there as well. And so God's people all throughout the ages have cried out to God for justice, uh, and God gives, the, gives it to them in his, in his time. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself is the righteous judge. There is no miscarriage of justice with him. You think of Abraham, it was kind of a rhetorical question that he said, Back in Genesis 18, verse 25, when God told him ahead of time, you know, basically, I'm going to come down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he had concern for Lot, his, his family members that were there. And he kept kind of saying, you know, whoa, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? And God kept saying, nope, I won't do it if there's that. And he intuitively knew there wasn't that. Uh, but he said to him in Genesis 18:25, Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the, the implication is certainly he would. There is no injustice with God. There would be no injustice with God. When God overturned the cities of the plain into, into fire and ash, there was no injustice with God. Not a bit. In fact, if he had overturned them in fire and ash, even when Lot was there, there would not have been injustice with God. Far be it from us to think such a thing. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous judge should be of unspeakable comfort to every believer, especially those who suffer for the name of Christ. This is the consistent testimony of the word of God. You might, you know, again, if I say the word judgment, we could play word association. I won't ask you to blurt anything out. But I'm guessing when I say judgment, your first instinct is to think of it in a negative way. Oh, 
You think, you, you think of judgment as a, as a synonym for condemnation. And sometimes it is, but that's not the real meaning of the word. Judgment means God's justice. It means God, the judge of all the earth, doing what is right. Uh, and, and in some ways, the just judgment of the Lord is the hope and consolation, and always has been the hope and consolation of God's people. We cry out for God's judgments on behalf of his people. In fact, very often God's judgments are the way he saves his people. You think about the Exodus. Those plagues were a judgment upon Exodus, those who were holding his people in slavery. Uh, For example, Psalm 72, verses 1 to 4, it says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend their cause, or sorry, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. That's what a godly king was supposed to do. And so God's people, even in the Psalms, prayed for their rulers and cried out to God that justice would be done through and by them. And in a greater sense, Psalm 72, like many of the Psalms, it speaks of an earthly king, but who's it really about? It's about God's anointed, the Messiah, the, his, his, God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in an even greater sense. So the prayer for earthly kings in Israel, no doubt, uh, was even more true when it came to the kingdom of Christ and his judgments, even the ones that are to come. Christ's judgments are a terror to the wicked and the unrepentant, but they are a source of great encouragement and comfort to the godly in Christ Jesus. It should be a great comfort to every believer that the Lord Jesus Christ, as Revelation 1.5 puts it, is the ruler of kings on earth. There's a reason Revelation starts with that. Jesus Christ is reigning above, above, over all things right now. He is the ruler of all things, even the kings on earth. He will make every one of those kings, rulers, judges, governors, presidents, whatever title you want to give to them, he will see to it in his judgments, both in this life and the life to come, that they, they will be held accountable for how they exercised or how they abused the authority that had been entrusted to them. All the things that we see in this life, and there are many of them, that many wicked rulers are doing, even now, they, no one gets away with anything. Christ will make all things right on that last day, and sometimes even in this life as well, that the fact that the Lord Jesus is the righteous judge uh, is not only a comfort for believers, especially those who suffer, but it should also be, honestly, a source of great fear and even terror to the wicked and the unrepentant. The fact that Jesus Christ is the righteous judge, the Savior, the one who died to save sinners, is also the just judge, should be a terror to the wicked and the unrepentant. The Bible speaks of the judgment to come numerous times, too many times to possibly cite in in one or more, two or three or four sermons. We could read these texts all day and we'd be here all day. Uh, and, but it, and the Bible does that not only to comfort the godly, but also to warn the repentant and to tell them to repent and turn to Christ while they have time, while turn to God in Christ for salvation while the day of salvation is available. Acts 17, verses 30 to 31, Paul preaching in the Areopagus to the people of Athens. He says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, Paul was in Athens, a pagan place, not a place where the Old Testament scriptures were likely to be held to or even held in high esteem. These people were full of pagan philosophy, pagan religion. And you'll notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't go to Athens, get up in front of the Areopagus, can't even say the name, and say, men of Athens, here's my opinion. I know it's different from your opinion. You may not believe this, but I think this is what's going to happen. He states the truth plainly and doesn't, doesn't give it as one option among many. He doesn't say, well, I believe or I think. He says, he tells them uh, that God commands all people everywhere. What does that mean? Including them. To do what? To repent. And why is that? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And how will God do that? By a man whom he has appointed. And who is that man? The Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know, among other things, how do we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the judge to come and that he will judge the living and the dead at his return? Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection was to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, God's king, put on his holy hill, that he is the one to whom all have been made subject and will be judged by him on the last day. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, Peter speaks of both the comfort to the godly and the terror of the wicked regarding the just judgment of Christ at his return. Again, Second Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows, here it is, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God's judgments in the past are proof that he will judge on the last day. It's, I think it's, it's instructive that when he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, he says particularly making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. There is no doubt that, that Christ, the righteous Lord and judge, will judge the living and the dead on that last day. And so when you think about what I just read in that text, the fact that we have so many in the churches today uh, that are affirming some of these very things that Paul is warning about in some ways uh, should tell us we should not be doing these things. We should not be affirming or celebrating sins that God will send judgments upon this world for. How many in their sin and unbelief ignore at or scoff at the examples of, 
what is going to happen to the ungodly in that text. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards, some regard him as the greatest theologian in American history, he said this, uh, some sobering words about the just judgment on the last day. He says, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. In other words, they don't deny that there's a hell, necessarily. They don't deny there's going to be a just judgment. They say, well, that won't be me. That'll be for those bad people out there. I mean, God, of course it's not me. It's the people that are worse than me. The, the sliding scale always goes past where you are, right? That God's balance is always leaning towards whatever sins I'm doing. Well, those aren't the ones that God's really upset about. It's something else. That's not the way the Bible teaches it. There's, there's only one escape from judgment, condemnation, and hell to be found for sinners. And what is that? It's by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. No man will be justified. No flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we do does one thing. Our works, even our, what we think of as our good works, our, uh, the wages of that is death. We can't do anything on our own to earn salvation. In fact, what we do is mainly the problem. We sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's only if you're in Jesus Christ by faith that you no longer need fear his coming and glory in that last day when he judges the living and the dead. If you are in Christ by faith, you not only don't need to fear Christ's return and his appearing, you can love his appearing, as Paul puts it in our text, and you should look forward to it. You know, uh, it's been said, I don't remember who the first was to say something like this, but, you know, for the unbelieving, the unrepentant, their best things they'll ever know are now. And they're short-lived. For the believer, we have many good and perfect gifts now that God has given us, but our best things are not now. Our best things are that which is to come at Christ's return. And the more that we set our hope on that and on his return, the better. Well, that brings us to the last point in our text, and that is not just the crown of righteousness, not just the Lord, the righteous judge, who will give it to Paul and all who loved his appearing, but the Lord's appearing. In other words, when? When is this crown going to be given? Uh, Paul pointed again to the reward, the giver of that reward, and now he reminds us of the occasion of the receiving of that gracious reward on that last day. Now, again, it, I think it's, it's very encouraging to us and thankful to Paul that he wrote such a thing in the midst of thinking about his own impending death and execution. I don't know about you, but if I was in, awaiting my execution for preaching the gospel, I, I might not be as thoughtful for the comfort of other people as I am of my, of my own. And yet what does Paul add here? He says that this crown was not just going to be for him, but to all who have loved Christ's appearing. He doesn't just say, I'm a special case, which he was in many ways. He says, the same reward that I'm looking forward to is that which is looked forward to by every believer. He holds out the same hope and the promise of God to all believers in Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 8. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me, it's set aside, it's reserved for him. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And then he says, and not only to me, but also to all, all who have loved his appearing. 
That's a wonderful description of a believer in Christ. You can say a lot of things about what's a Christian, what's a believer. One of the descriptions that the scripture uses is that we are those who have loved Christ's appearing. Not only loving Christ's first appearing when he came and laid down his life as an atonement for our sins to reconcile us to God, but also his second coming when he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead and to bring us our gracious reward. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 uh, speaks of both these things. It says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, no reincarnation, no do-over, no anything. It is appointed uh, by God, that is, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In other words, he came the first time to die for sin. He died once for all, Hebrews says, not, not many times. He doesn't die over and over again. The second time, he's not coming to atone for sin. He's already done that. But he's coming to save those who what? Who are eagerly waiting for him. Another description at heart of every believer. We should be eagerly awaiting for our Savior's return. How is it, think about this, how is it that a sinner, how is it that a sinner can love Christ's appearing when he returns in glory. On their own, no one can. The only way a sinner can love Christ's appearing and look forward to it is if he or she is in Christ by faith. Only the justified sinner, the one whose sins have been forgiven and atoned for by the blood of Christ on the cross, only that person can love and look forward to Christ's return in glory. Only the justified sinner can actually look forward to and love Christ's appearing. John Stott again puts it well. He says, the unbeliever, the one outside of Christ, the unbeliever being unjustified dreads the coming of Christ, if he even believes in it or thinks about it at all. Being unready for it, he will shrink in shame from Christ at his coming. The believer, on the other hand, having been justified, looks forward to Christ's coming and has set his heart upon it. Being ready for it, he will have boldness when Christ appears, 1 John 2.28. Only those who have entered by faith into the benefit of Christ's first coming are eagerly awaiting his second, Hebrews 9.28. On our own, none of us, we would be crazy to look forward to Christ's return if left to ourselves, if we were outside of Christ and still in our sins because all it would mean would be the certainty of God's just judgment on us for our sins. But if you have been joined to Christ by faith and justified by faith in him, all your sins have been forgiven and you forever in Christ have been accepted by God as righteous in his sight. Not by anything you've done or I've done, but by only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness put to your account by faith. The justified sinner, the believer in Christ, can actually and should look forward to the return of Christ and love his appearing. And so I'll ask this morning, are, are, you in, are you in Christ by faith? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you justified before a holy God by faith in Jesus Christ alone? And if so, are you looking forward to the return of Christ in glory? 
If you are in Christ by faith, you can and should look forward to Christ's return and even love, as Paul says, love his appearing when he makes all things right. Why? Because the believer in Christ, his, for, for the believer, Christ's return in glory is no longer the day of your judgment or condemnation. It is the day of your reward and glory and consolation in him. Paul rejoiced at this truth. It cheered him and consoled him, even as his execution in Rome was looming on the horizon. This is the kind of thing that Paul thought about and reminded Timothy about when he thought of his impending death. May the Holy Spirit work in you and I who believe in Christ that we too, as Paul did, might fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith, and so rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and even love his appearing. Amen.